0: Please be seated and turn in your Bibles to James. Uh, we're going to finish up chapter 4 this evening and get into chapter 5. Uh, if you notice when we read here in a minute, uh, there's two sections to tonight's text and they each begin the same way. Come now, you who, and he goes on to describe some particular activity. Uh, he, he's describing ways that we are tempted to think the, wor- the way that the world thinks, uh, it's, it's quite common in our day to speak of worldview. Uh, that is, that we, we have a story that helps us understand the world that we are living in, uh, that guides us in terms of right and wrong. Uh, Christianity has a very distinctive worldview, and one that we would argue is the only true worldview. Uh, out in the world, there are other worldviews. And those worldviews, because we hear those worldviews implicitly and explicitly day in and day out in the media we consume, in the places that we work, uh, it's it's very difficult sometimes to live our lives always remembering the worldview that is revealed to us in Scripture. And so uh, James has been reminding us uh, ever since at least the beginning of chapter 4 Not to live as the world lives, but instead to remember who we are and who God is and the implications of that for how we live. And so this evening he's going to address, as I was telling the children earlier, two things. One is our time and the other is our money. And so uh, the, uh, the points this evening is that tomorrow does not belong to you and your wealth does not belong to you. Tomorrow does not belong to you and your wealth does not belong to you. Uh, a couple of things before i pray and read one is james does something somewhat strange here a lot of james feels strange uh, we've talked about the fact that this is a a sort of wisdom literature uh, in a letter he he uses a lot of the same kind of uh, uh, of expressions or figures of speech or way of of speaking in his letter here that's reminiscent of the old testament wisdom literature now, this evening, what what I think James is doing is he's been talking to the people of God, and almost in a sort of stage way, he turns to talk to the world. But in such a way that we are hearing, we are listening in. Now, you're going to understand why I say that as we read. He no longer addresses the ones to whom he's talking as brother. Uh, and he describes them as as being under the absolute judgment of God. It's a, uh, a pretty harsh break from the way he's been talking, and the way he's going to to return to writing in next week's text. But even as he sort of, as I said, in a in a, a stage sort of way, turns to the world to address the world, we are intended to hear it. Because we are inclined to think the way the world thinks and inclined to act the way the world acts. One more thing before we begin, and that is, uh, he's going to... Remember, there's been a lot of emphasis in James so far on the way we speak. And in this first one this evening, the first issue that he addresses, he says, don't talk this way, talk this way. But I think it's important that as we read and as we consider these verses, we understand that James may be referring to speech, but it's the heart that he's getting at. It's not a hard and fast rule. You can't say it like this. You have to say it like this. And if you say it like this, you're just fine. The speech that comes out of us reveals what's in the heart. And James is saying, if this is the speech coming out of you, rather than this, it reveals a worldview problem that you have. And so we're going to address that as we, uh, we get into the text this evening. Let me pray and we'll read. Fathers, we come to this letter of James. We pray that your spirit will be at work. Uh, that we would understand it rightly, that we would apply it effectively, that You, by Your Spirit, would apply it to us. Uh, Father, we pray that, uh, that we would remember who we are, and more importantly, who You are, and who You are to us this evening, as we consider the contrast between the way we ought to live, and the way that the world calls us to live. Father, we pray that You would make us more like Christ, as we sit under the reading and preaching of Your Word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Hear the reading of God's Word. This is James 4, beginning in verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is You boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, The wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's a rather simple message this evening. Again, in two parts, he's going to address time, and he's going to address our money. And particularly, our attitudes towards these these things. Uh, Again, though James addresses particular words here, he says, uh, you know, he refers to those who say, today or tomorrow, we'll go do this. He says that that's, that's boasting. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this and that. I want to be clear, I don't think every time we use a future tense verb, we're required to proceed it with if the Lord wills. Uh, I hope that we all understand that this is the case. And that's what James is calling us back to. It's not so much that if you don't preface your future tense verbs with if the Lord wills, you're boasting in evil, but rather that, that even when we say this is what I'm going to do, We ought to be making those plans and anticipating those plans as those who understand that God is sovereign over all things, that He has ordained all things. He's not, notice, present participle, ordaining all things as He goes. All things have been ordained. God knows what tomorrow brings because God ordained what tomorrow brings. And the attitude of the one that James is addressing here in the text is one who has forgotten God. One who is ignoring God. One who at best assumes that the plans He makes are God's plans. God's going to get on board. Rather than recognizing that God has ordained all things and will do as He wills. That God is always wise, always good, always loving that God knows what is best. And so when we make our plans, we ought to make our plans, first application here, we ought to make our plans asking the question, is this consistent with how I am called to live? At the very least, is this consistent with with the righteousness to which I'm called? Is the, the thing or are the things that I am planning consistent with how we are called to live as we're hearing from Ephesians on Sunday mornings? Is this walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called? What is it that God has ordained? Now, I started uh, in on this a couple of Sundays ago. I think it was in the mornings, uh, because a couple of Sundays Sundays ago I was preaching in the mornings, and I got sidetracked. I'm having a conversation in my head while I talk out loud it's a different conversation than the one you're hearing. And sometimes they they get disjointed and I forget where I was going. And, uh, and I, I started in on the will of God. I want to come back to that. Listen, the Lord has two wills. A revealed will, and it's revealed in His Word, and a secret will that He has not revealed to us, nor are we responsible to know it. In fact, we, we would be sinning to attempt to pry into the secret will as if we could. It's one of my favorite little sayings from Calvin. He says, where God speaks, I am bound to speak. But where He is silent, I put my hand over my mouth. Right? We, we cannot know the secret will of God, but brothers and sisters, the revealed will of God is enough to keep us occupied for a lifetime and more, isn't it? This is where God says to us, what is right? Often we get caught up in trying to discern God's will with respect to whether I should take job A or job B, assuming that both are are ethically and morally uh, acceptable jobs. Uh, You have freedom. God has given you freedom. In wisdom, choose the best option and move on. Don't worry about God's secret will. He hasn't revealed it, and therefore you'll never know it. It's important to understand this about God's will. It's important that we understand it this evening because I don't want you to misunderstand what James is saying. James is saying, You're not, he's not saying that you aren't allowed to make plans. James is not saying you're not allowed to make plans. He says as much here. He says, You ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Make plans. But all of our plans ought to be submitted to the revealed will of God. And application number two, submitted as they unfold to the secret will of God. You see, we do come to know God's secret will. It's everything that happens. Nothing happens that has not been ordained by God. And as they occur, we can with confidence say, God ordained that. We cannot with confidence always say why God ordained that. We will spend much of our lives wondering why God has ordained terrible things to happen to us or to others. But there is no denying that according to God's word, he has ordained them. Where this that the rubber meets the road on this is where our plans fail. And how do we respond to our plans failing? Do we respond by, by considering that God has ordained something else? That we made plans, but God knew better. That God's plans for us may be harder than the plans we had for ourselves, but they are nonetheless His plans. And that's scary for the, for the moment uh, between hearing it and remembering that the God we're talking about is a God who has said to us, call me Father. Everything in creation belongs to me. You are my son. You are my daughter. You will inherit all that is mine in my Son, Jesus Christ. This is the one about whom we're saying He may have a different plan than yours. So that when our plans are broken, when our plans are disrupted, That the right response, hard as it may be at times, is to say, God knows what is best. And what might He be doing here? How might I learn from this? How might I take advantage of this? We talked about it this morning in Sunday school. There's that passage in Acts where Paul says, I really, really wanted to go over there. But the Spirit wouldn't let me. And he doesn't say, "I didn't want to go over there," but you kind of get the implication, or, or you kind of get the sense from the way it's recorded that that really wasn't where his thoughts were headed, when he has the vision of the man standing on the other side of the sea, saying, "Come over to us," right? That was not in, in Paul's mind, apparently. but God had other plans. So when we live our lives, brothers and sisters, we cannot give in to the temptation to think as the world thinks, as though God does not exist. But we ought to be making our plans cognizant of the fact that He is there. Cognizant of the fact that He has ordained all things. Asking ourselves, what might He have ordained here, right? How, what does it look like for me to spend my tomorrow for Christ? We don't know specifically what God has ordained, but we do know what He has revealed in His Word. And so we ought to be in His Word. We ought to be studying His Word. Studying God's Word is to study God's will. It is to study His very character. Second, this evening, is not only time, but our wealth. There's a lot more we we could say about that first point. I will say this before we move on. That last verse, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. That feels a little out of place. Uh, Until you stop, and if you're a procrastinator, so am I. Uh, I'm talking to you, but it's in solidarity. Um, It's a sin to say, I know God has told me to do this. I'll do it tomorrow. It presumes upon tomorrow. You do not know what tomorrow brings. And if God has called you, if you have a clear calling from His Word... If you have a clear calling, you are bound to do it and not put it off till tomorrow. I think this is supported by what he says in verse 14. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are missed. You can't count on tomorrow. God has not promised you tomorrow. He's given us work to do and we ought to be about that business. I'm not talking about cleaning off your desk. I'm talking about telling your neighbor about Christ talking about being about the work of the kingdom that you've been given to do in whatever corner of the kingdom it is that God is putting you to work. Do not put that off until tomorrow. Second this evening is our money. James does something particularly uh, uh, brilliant here, I think, in terms of the, the way he uses language Uh, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Look at what he says. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Now, if you read too quickly, that sounds like a commendation. Congratulations, you've laid up treasure for the last days, except it's not a commendation. The rich are being described here as counting on their money to provide for them in every way, even at the judgment itself. You think you're saving up money, but on the last day, when you think you're going to pull this money out to deliver yourself from that judgment, you will find that the money you've put away has corroded. It's rusted into nothing. And in fact, it's going to do worse than nothing. It's going to testify against you. Look at what he says. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. It turns out that the rich, when they put all of their trust in their income, all of their trust in their money, when they are willing even to rob and to cheat in order to put it away, they are not only piling up worthless things. But those things will testify against them. And look at what James says. He uses uses some, especially especially for Jews who know the sacrificial system. This next line is a zinger. Look at what he says. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. All of this fine living, all of this Spending all of this money for yourself and saving it up for your own well-being. Going so far as even to, to cheat others in order to gain as much as you can. It's like an animal that's being fed so that it will be fattened up so that on the day of slaughter it will yield as much meat as possible. That's what you're doing to yourself, James says, to the rich. Again, the problem is a worldview problem. The rich to whom James speaks here are those who are not trusting in Christ, but are trusting in their wealth. I think today we could, we could stick with the wealth theme here, but we could also probably substitute a lot of things. You're counting on your, uh, your modest good works. You're counting on your education. You're counting on how much of the Bible and theology you know. None of these things will save you. None of these things will do you any good, but will only pile up and serve as evidence against you on the day of judgment if you have not trusted in Christ. What's the problem with living this way? Well, besides putting our trust in a completely worthless thing, when we live this way, we live as though God is not our provider. We live as though God does not know our needs, will not care for our needs, and will not provide for those needs even up to the judgment itself. We live, when we live this way, as those who have forgotten where our wealth came from, because we hoard it up for ourselves rather than receiving it from God, from whom it comes, in order to be a blessing to those around us with it. There ought to be generosity flowing out of the people of God because of the wealth that He has given to His people. Not hoarding and greed. I think these things are so profoundly uncharacteristic of a Christian that James can't even bring himself to call them brother. He's going to pretend he's talking to the world for a minute and let you overhear it. Because he can't bring himself to describe a Christian this way. These things are so utterly inconsistent with Christianity. And listen, the, the idea that these are contrary to the character of God is only a, a, a halfway house to the full truth. Don't stop there. If you stop there, there's only shame. That is not the ultimate place that we should end up this evening. It is a reminder with our time and our money that God is sovereign. That He has called us His children. That He has promised to provide for us. We don't need to hoard these things up. We don't need to make our own plans for tomorrow come you know what may. We have a God who knows all things. Who is all powerful. Who has ordained all things for our good. A God who is aware of every single need that you have. A God who is good and loving and patient and generous to provide for our needs. It doesn't mean there won't be hardship. James is going to come back to that next week. He's been pretty clear about it in the book so far. But even in the midst of hardship, He's a shepherd to us. right? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. In the midst of my enemies, you have prepared a table for me. Brothers and sisters, it's not just that this is bad, you shouldn't be like this. It's that this is absurd. If we know the God who made all things and who has taught us to call Him Father, how could we possibly act this way? We've got to have a worldview day in and day out in all of our plans, in all of our plans, not only with our time, but with our money. We ought to be, and particularly when we're in relationship in a household with other people, we ought to be saying to one another What do we know about God and about the kingdom and about what we're called to as we make these plans? Let's pray.